Thank you so much, Deacon Arrow, for that spirited service leading, especially that spirit-filled prayer that he prayed. Uh, Sister Esther as well, and the music team for the songs that we sang. Good evening, everyone. Uh, blessed Chinese New Year to you. It's still Chinese New Year, right? So as we get ready to hear God's word, can I ask you to keep your Bibles opened to Luke chapter 4? Uh, and you can also find a very simple sermon outline in the bulletin. So if you download the e-bulletin, you can refer to that outline. Would you please bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord God, we wish to see Jesus. And indeed, where can we go to see Jesus? But in your word. And now we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would give us years, you would give us years to hear him and eyes to see his glory and authority in your word today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. I open by asking this question to all of us. Do you know if you are slave or free? How do you know if you are oppressed by anything? Well, growing up as students, you and I may feel oppressed. We are enslaved to studies, right? Always chasing the next test, the next better grade. Or you may even feel oppressed by your parents and teachers because of the relentless tuition sessions and assessments. Well, those of us who start work may find that we are enslaved to our jobs, that we are oppressed by our demanding bosses and clients. Many of us, once we get married, we buy houses, we become enslaved by home mortgages or car loans and study loans, especially with the rising home prices and high interest rates. So aren't you happy with the recent announcement in the budget? Right? Relief's coming. And some of my friends used to call NS national slavery. Is it really national slavery? Well, let's check it out. How about our enslavement to digital devices? This is my new phone, just got it a week ago. Right? So here are some statistics from marketing agency Into the Minds. According to research, if, if you find you are guilty of this, you can raise your hand with me. Okay? According to this research, people check their smartphones up to 150 times a day. Anyone? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I never counted. <laughs> okay. 50% okay? of smartphone users check their phones when waking up and still in bed. Anyone guilty? I, I am. <laughs> I'm guilty. Okay, the rest of you don't dare to say it should be 50% of us. Right? 50% of smartphone users uh, also check it at least once an hour. Anyone? Yeah, okay, <laughs> me too. Uh, one third check it in the bathroom. <laughs> don't dare to raise hands. <laughs> okay, so we are so enslaved to our de devices, right? How can I be free? How can you be free from mobile oppression? Smartphone slavery. Well, is it really slavery? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines oppression as this. Oppression is the unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. Cambridge Dictionary calls it a situation in which people are governed in an unfair and cruel way and prevented from having opportunities and freedom. So really what we face in Singapore is nothing compared to true oppression. Reuters reports 
last Saturday, Myanmar's junta declared a law governing mandatory military service will be enforced for men aged 18 to 35 and women aged 18 to 27 for up to two years. And those who fail to comply with the draft face up to five years in prison. This is true oppression. The Straits Times cites a 29-year-old entrepreneur who says, I would either run away or join with revolution forces. So the people of Myanmar may be asking themselves, how can I be free from an oppressive regime? Spiritually, we may also ask ourselves, how can you and I be free from oppression? Oppression by whom? Oppression by Satan and sin. And this is our greater need. In fact, I would say our greatest need. For apart from being delivered from this oppression, you and I are eternally condemned. We are eternally separated from God. And there's that constant fear of death, and what if after death there is judgment? We are not free from that fear. And today in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 44, we shall see how Jesus Christ has been appointed by God to set us free from all oppression, and especially spiritual oppression. First, in verses 14 to 30, Jesus' authority to set people free is rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth. And then in verses 31 to 44, Jesus' authority to set people free is recognized, is revealed and recognized in Capernaum. In Luke 1 and 2, we've been introduced to who Jesus is, that Jesus is God's divine son through the testimonies of the angels, the shepherds, Simeon, as well as Anna. Then in chapter 3, Jesus was revealed to be the perfect man who obeys God unlike the first Adam and the first Israel. For he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, and yet he did not sin or disobey God. Now, here in Luke chapter 4, this Jesus is presented to us as the great liberator. He's the one who sets God's people free from oppression, from sin and Satan. First, in verses 14 to 30, we see Jesus in Nazareth, where his authority to set people free is rejected. Verses 14 and 15 first summarize the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in the re whole region of Galilee, which includes Nazareth and Capernaum. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, in verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So here what we see is that Jesus' ministry was spirit-empowered. He went in the power of the Spirit. It is widely known and universally praised. This is a summary statement of his whole ministry in Galilee. And like Elizabeth and Zechariah in chapter 1, Simeon in chapter 2, Jesus is here described as spirit-filled in chapter 4, verse 1. He goes forth in the power of the Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, Jesus became famous because of two things, because of the words that he was saying and the deeds that he was doing, his teaching and miracles. Luke focuses here on Jesus' teaching in the synagogues or the Jewish meeting rooms. And this led to glory or praise by all. 
It seems like people throughout Galilee recognize that Jesus has God's authority to teach. Well, all except one place, and that is verse 16. Shall we read verse 16 together? And Jesus returned in the... Uh, sorry, next slide, please. Verse 16. Oh, sorry, I didn't put this. I didn't put the verse. Okay. Let me read it for us. Verse 16, you can refer in your Bibles. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, Luke and the other Gospel writers present the Lord Jesus as a pious Jew. So he goes to church every Sunday. But in those days, they attend synagogue meetings on the Sabbath. And in the Sabbath, in the, in the synagogue, after the Shema was recited and prayers were offered, Jesus was asked, or he offered, to read the scriptures and perhaps deliver a sermon. Now, there are usually two readings in the synagogue meeting. One is taken from the Torah, the five books of Moses, and another is from the prophets. In this case, the, the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, it seems like there may not have been a fixed le lectionary. There may not been a, have been a preaching schedule. Right? But in verse, six, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Okay, so in other words, Jesus was given the book of Isaiah and asked, choose some, some, some part of Isaiah to preach from. Okay, so in other words, the Lord had to deliver an impromptu sermon, which is nerve-wracking for most preachers like myself, except for the most seasoned ones like Pastor Chris. You give me any passage you can preach. Okay, I cannot. Well, from archaeological evidence, the entire book of Isaiah may be contained in one scroll. Right? But the next line tells us that Jesus chose the passage rather deliberately. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, do you know how many chapters there are in, in Isaiah? If you don't know by, by second half of this year, you'll know because we're going to study the whole book of Isaiah. Okay? So there are 66, 66 chapters in Isaiah. And out of these 66 chapters, Jesus went almost to the end to chapter 61. And he, he likely was reading from the Greek translation of Isaiah 61. Okay. So if you look at this comparison, uh, it's a bit small, but hopefully uh, I think the words in red at the bottom are most important. Compare the two, uh, there are some slight differences, okay? and he was slightly reading from the Greek translation, because if you look at the English translation of, uh, of Isaiah 61, you'll find there are some differences. So this is a bit closer. Apart from a few minor variations, the key point is how the Lord Jesus where he chose to end his reading. And he chose to end his reading at the line to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He omits the next line, the day of retribution or the day of vengeance. Okay? So it seems that Jesus here is signalling that the focus of his first coming is to extend God's favour to repentant sinners, while the day of retribution or vengeance is yet to come in the future and it will come for the recalcitrant sinner. 
Now, any of you here is the subject of a book or movie? It could be that some of us are, you know. <laughs> did, I see a, did I see a hand? No. Okay. So it could be. Uh, but imagine this. Imagine you are reading the biography of Napoleon, right? Or recently the movie came out, right? Napoleon. And so you, you may watch it. Okay? Or you read the biography of Napoleon by Andrew uh, Roberts. Or you read the biography of Sun Yat-san by Paul Lindbarger. Okay? These are both, both are authoritative biographies of both men. And then after reading it, you go on and declare publicly in front of everyone, this book, this movie is about me. It'd be regarded as mad, right? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. Verse 20 tells us, after reading Isaiah, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now it says, he began to say to them, which implies that either this is the opening line of his sermon, or he went on to give a sermon based on Isaiah 61, and the gist or the big idea of his sermon is this, that Isaiah was writing about him. Jesus is making a bold and clear statement about himself. In other words, in order to unpack Isaiah 61, Jesus is saying that he's the spirit-filled one that Isaiah spoke of, that he is God's anointed, the king that God promised would come, the promised Messiah. He was sent by God on mission to be his messenger. And this mission is to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. But Jesus doesn't just declare with his mouth freedom and favor. He also has the power to enact it, to set people free. Now, Isaiah 61 originally was referring to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, that 50th year when all debts are cancelled, all land and property restored to the poor. Jesus is saying that he came to fulfill this liberation of the oppressed, those downtrodden by Satan and sin, this year of Jubilee. How? By his redeeming work on the cross. He paid the debt so that you and I may go free. He ransomed us from bondage. And how did the people of Nazareth respond to this? Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So everything seems quite positive at first, right? Jesus' teaching captivated them. Perhaps because of his skillful rhetoric or his gracious words. Perhaps because he didn't go on and talk about the day of retribution. Right? But later, in the second half of the verse, they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Their compliment turns into contempt. They are surprised to scorn. Because they reasoned that surely Jesus cannot be the one that Isaiah was speaking about. He cannot be God's anointed king. They are contemptuous at Jesus' lowly origin as Joseph's son, one of their homies. He grew up as an apprentice in his father's carpentry workshop in rural Nazareth. How can this be the Messiah? Well, in a sense, their response is quite understandable. 
Imagine DPM Lawrence Wong's classmates. He was from the former Tanjong Katong Secondary Technical School. We used to call it TK Tech for short. So their classmates may find it quite incredulous that their classmate would soon be our next prime minister. How can this be? Is this a deliberate proof for every school a good school? We, we don't know. Lah. But the Lord Jesus perceives their inner thoughts and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. See, the Lord Jesus knows that they want him to show them preferential statements, to do here in Nazareth the same healings, the same exorcism miracles that they hear that he's been doing at Capernaum. Perhaps there's some rivalry between uh, Nazareth and the larger neighbour, Capernaum, which are barely 30 kilometres apart. It's like the long-standing rivalry, those of you who watch EPL will know, between Manchester United and Liverpool, which are cities that are 50 kilometres apart. Perhaps they are challenging Jesus to prove his authority and to perform before their own eyes the miracles that they only hear about so far. Well, the Lord responds to them, beginning from verse 24. He says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Or in the words of the 14th century English poet slash author slash civil servant, uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, he's best known for the Canterbury Tales, Tales, he famously says this, Familiarity breeds contempt. And as if to prove Jesus' point, to prove Jesus' point, uh, he goes on to give two other Old Testament examples. So firstly, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus recounts from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. He says, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And then in verse 27, he recalls Elisha's story in 2 Kings chapter 5. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. See, in both cases, in Elijah's time and Elisha's time, the people of Israel were godless, immoral, and that is why God sends his prophets to save the Gentile foreigners. Jesus' words here are quite prov provocative, right, to his hearers. They will have understood him as giving them a warning that they will be rejected by God because they have rejected him. And Jesus is saying that he will go on to others instead of favouring his own townsfolk. And so they respond in a way that only confirms Jesus' assessment of them. Verse 28, shall we read these verses together? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. Thank you. See, here, their jealousy of Jesus turned into wrath and murder. They tried to kill Jesus for implying that others will be blessed instead of them. But since it's not yet time for Jesus to die, he's able to simply pass through their midst and go away. 
And I, I suspect that this miraculous escape may prove to us Psalm 91, which the devil tempted Jesus with. Remember, in, in, earlier in chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, that God has indeed commanded his angels to guard Jesus, to bear him up with their hands, lest he strikes his foot against a stone. There in the wilderness temptation, Jesus would not put God to the test. He would not succumb to, to the devil's temptation. But now God himself vindicates Jesus as the Son of God with divine authority. Brothers and sisters, do you and I also get angry with God for blessing others instead of us? Do we also reason that God should reward us for our good behaviour? Do we demand that he cuts us some slack because we are his homies? When we don't get what we want, do we try to get rid of God? Going on now to verses 31 to 44. Having been rejected by his own townsfolk, Jesus now goes down to Capernaum, where his authority to set people free is finally recognised. Now, this is the third mention of people's reactions to Jesus' teaching in the synagogues. The responses are quite similar. In verse 15, they glorified him or they praised him. In verse 22, they marveled. And here in verse 32, they were astonished. But it's only here in Capernaum that Luke tells us that they recognized that his word has authority. See, these people believed, and therefore Jesus would make Capernaum his home and base for ministry in the region of Galilee. But Jesus didn't do many, many miracles in Nazareth because the people there had no faith. Here in Capernaum, however, Luke records for us some miracles of Jesus. In verse 33, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. First, notice where this demon-possessed man was. He was in the synagogue, right? The strange place to find a demon-possessed man. Perhaps many of us have watched too many movies and shows, right? We, 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 they portray church buildings as sacred places where demons cannot come in, right? So if you meet a, a demon-possessed man, run to the church, right? But actually, this shows us that there was no special power in a Jewish meeting house, a synagogue, or any church building for that matter. No power to keep demons out. Rather, it is only the authority of Jesus in his word that drives out unclean spirits. Notice here that the demon recognizes the Lord. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. And he also knows that Jesus' mission is to come and destroy them. The demons recognize Jesus when the disciples and others don't. Jesus rebuke. Be silent and come out of him. Right? There are seven words in the English, at least in ESV, right? and five words in the Greek. Out of these five, two are commands. Be silent, come out. 
and the demon had no choice but to obey. This shows us Jesus' authority to set the oppressed free, just as Isaiah had said. Again in verse 36, the people of Capernaum recognized the authority of Jesus' words, and they were amazed, they were all amazed, and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. We see here that Jesus' public deeds, his act here, leads to public amazement. It leads to resounding fame. But the next incident is a bit more private. It took place in Simon's home to someone in his own household. Luke probably learned about it from Mark's account, Mark's gospel, and Mark likely heard it from the apostle Peter himself. We read in verse 38, And he, that's Jesus, arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Notice here, Jesus rebuked the fever, and it immediately left her. She fully recovered. She could rise to serve her guests. Now, we know that this doesn't usually happen with high fevers, right? You may not know, but I seldom fall sick. But when I do, it tends to be quite severe. right? So if I have a high fever uh, due to dehydration, I might be fatigued for a couple of days, even after the high fever goes away. So for this to happen, for, for a mother-in-law to get up and immediately be able to serve the guests, this is a true miracle. Again, the emphasis here is on the authority of Jesus' words. He rebuilt the fever, and it immediately left her, just as the demon had left the man instantly. Jesus also rebuilt the demon earlier in chapter 4, verse 35, and many demons as well in verse 41. See, rebuking, the power in, is in Jesus' words. Verses 40 to 41 simply show us an expansion of Jesus' work of healing and exorcism, but now to a wider scale. Verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Again, G demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Again, demons recognize him when others do not. But he rebuked them and wouldn't let them speak. Why? Perhaps this might cause uh, possible disruption to his mission if they were to tell others that he was the Christ. But I think quite likely it is because of the common misunderstanding that, of the Christ. And this understanding of the Christ as a political liberator would, in, would, might lead to an uprising. It would involve armed rebellion from political oppression. And so after a day of spectacular spiritual victories, Jesus could have capitalized on his popularity 
He could have continued on in Capernaum. Instead, we read next in verse 42. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. See, instead of advancing his own public fame, Jesus went away on a, public, uh, in a private retreat. Why? Uh, perhaps to pray to his father. And Mark's parallel account would tell us this. And after speaking to his father, Jesus is now clear that he must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. That this was why he was sent. This was the purpose for which he was sent. Because he knows that it's the preaching of the kingdom of God that will lead to people being freed from oppression as they hear this good news about what Jesus came to do. But the people of Capernaum wanted to keep Jesus with them for, him, for themselves so that they can continue to hear his word and see his work. Like the people of Nazareth, they want to keep Jesus for themselves. They don't want to share him with others. But unlike Nazareth who tried to kill him, the people in Capernaum adore Jesus so much. Like a young child, you know, sometimes they may get jealous or they, they may cry and kick out a big fuss. They become possessive when a younger sibling comes along or when the mum picks up another child, another toddler. Right? Then they'll make, make a big fuss. This seems to be what the people of Capernaum were doing. Do we also see Jesus as someone who can meet our personal needs and desires? Do we refuse or neglect to share him with others so that they may also be blessed by Jesus? How can we see that Jesus has so much to give in himself that our enjoyments of him will not diminish but rather be enhanced when more come to know him? In any case, here we see that Jesus was once again delivered from their attempts to detain him, to detain him for themselves in Capernaum. It's in the same way as he escaped from the hostile mob in Nazareth. The next thing we know, he was away from them. He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, from the other Gospels, we will see that Jesus will make multiple trips between Galilee and Judea in the south. And next week, in chapter 5, we shall meet him back in Galilee. But to summarize what we've seen so far, we've learned that Jesus is the one appointed by God, prophesied by Isaiah. He's been sent by God to set people free from oppression, especially, especially spiritual oppression from sin and Satan. So the implication for you and I is this. Will you be slave or free? So how will we be slave or free? If we harden our hearts to Jesus, then we remain slaves to Satan and sin. But if we welcome Jesus with gladness in our hearts, we shall be set free from sin and Satan. But perhaps for many of us, it's our familiarity, it's our false expectations about Jesus that may lead us to reject him like Nazareth did. Like the Israelites in the days of Elijah and Elisha, whose hearts led them to reject God. 
And so they were rejected by God, and the prophets were sent to save the foreigners instead. Likewise, the people of Nazareth tried to kill Jesus, and Jesus left for Capernaum. Jesus is free to go wherever the Father wills. But do we as long-time Christians have this, what we call an elder brother syndrome? Do we also tell our heavenly, brother, our heavenly Father that he mustn't receive our prodigal brother back, that instead he owes us that fattened calf, or maybe in Chinese New Year, right, second pig, for our many years of hard service? We think that God owes us for our strong piety or sacrificial service. After all, we've been faithful in our daily devotions, in our church attendance. You may even be a pastor or elder or served for many years in children's church or basic youth ministry or fill in the blank. So we think that bad things surely wouldn't happen to us and shouldn't happen to us. That's the least that God owes us. So we've bound ourselves to grudging service to God in return for expected returns from Him. And so we remain slaves to our self-desires. We do not live as God's free adopted children. But surely God is sovereign to do whatever He wills, for His wisdom far surpasses ours. And like Job, we may not be able to understand His higher purpose for our suffering, but we are to just simply trust Him. Perhaps it's for our sanctification and His glory. Perhaps it's for His church, for us as His church, to witness to a hapless world what hope in Christ looks like. Or perhaps we'll just never know this side of heaven. But God isn't our homie. He doesn't owe us anything. Rather, we are His graced sinners who owes Him everything. This past Thursday, many of our local schools and institutions just commemorated Total Defence Day on the very day that Singapore fell to the Japanese in 1942. So from what I understand in my kids' schools as well, some schools turned off electricity and water supply for one hour. Okay. One school I know mandated that no meat shall be sold in the canteen and you cannot bring any meat in your lunch boxes from home just for that day. These are simple ways to remember our hardship during the Japanese occupation so that our children will continue to remember. But one key lesson that we've learned from the Japanese occupation is this, that Singapore needs to defend itself, right? which is why we introduced national service, not national slavery, national service in 1967. Of course, among the pastors, I think right now only Pastor Kenneth and Pastor Daniel, they are still young enough to serve in camp training. Okay, the rest of us too old. So we may all joke about how this is national slavery, but without this compulsory service for guys at least, there might really be no freedom for Singapore. And so we serve so that we may be free. But Paul is saying, in, Paul says in Romans 6, 22, that for the Christian, we serve because we are free. He says this, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruits you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. 
So now that we are ransomed sons and daughters of God, we're children of God, we've received God's grace towards us. Will we now live our lives as willing slaves to Him? Let's pray. Let's go to God together in prayer. Lord, indeed to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Son of God. Father, we thank you that Jesus, your Son, has authority in his word and to do your work. That his gospel word was proclaimed for our salvation. That by faith in his atoning work, we may be set free from bondage to Satan and sin. Would you please help us to know your grace to us in Christ, to love Christ our Saviour with our whole being, and to give our ransomed lives in your service. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.